Father, we live in a broken world. It's absolutely messed up. Things happen. We don't understand. I think of that kid yesterday or the day before, was he? In the Mall of America. Just the tragedy that took place there. We seek you in behalf of that child and ask that you would heal him. I know we're joining with thousands of others praying for this child right now. I pray for a miracle that you will heal him. But Father, help us as we live in this broken world. Help us to always fix our eyes on Jesus and to experience even your peace in the midst of the suffering and the turmoil. We need you. And teach us from your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Okay, Josiah, come on up. Turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 20 through 25, page 685 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. Going through the book of Hebrews, verse by verse. And today is the last Sunday in Hebrews. We're going to finish the book today. I'm actually kind of sad. I've loved going through this book. But, uh, but here we are, and Josiah is going to read it for us, okay? Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Beware that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Great Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who are from Italy, send your greetings. Grace be with you all. Amen. Great job. In fact, do you want to just finish the sermon? (laughs) All right. I want to start off where I just want to encourage you. As you saw our passage, it starts out, the God of peace. God is the God of peace. And so in this messed up world, I thought it'd be nice to just start out with some calm. So I want you to just relax. We're going to turn on the lights. Good. And I want you to just listen, watch this brief video, and think of God as the God of peace.
It goes for like another 10 minutes, but uh, you'll all be asleep by then. God is the God of peace. Look at, I want to read verse 20 again. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And then he goes on to finish the sentence here. But the God of peace. Now most today would like this part, and they would, uh, in fact, most today emphasize God's love, and how perhaps he's a peaceful old grandpa, right? Uh, they completely miss the great dilemma, the great dilemma before God himself, because God is holy and he is loving. People ask, how can a loving God send people to hell? when they should be asking, how can a holy God allow sinful people into his presence? The God of the Bible answers both of those questions. The holy God sends people to hell because their wicked rebellion deserves it. The loving God took their penalty upon himself so they could be reconciled to him and not go to hell and escape the punishment. Hmm. The loving God. The God of peace is a God of peace and justice and love and holiness. He is the perfect God of the Bible, and that's what we've been seeing throughout the book of Hebrews. The Hebrews who were uh, this book concludes with the themes that he's been speaking about throughout the whole book. And here we see how God brings peace and why he brings peace. So let's first look at how he brings peace. We see that in the first verse, in verse 20. But what is peace? Uh, Erene is the Greek word. It's uh, very similar to the Hebrew word shalom. It means when everything is right in the world. Ultimately, that's what we're going to experience. When everything is made right in the world. No more death. No more heartache. No more tragedies. That's ultimate peace. It doesn't completely come until the return of Jesus Christ. But peace can be experienced in the midst of turmoil even now because God is the God of peace. This is what the Jewish believers, the, the original readers of the book of Hebrews. The Jewish believers needed to hear because of the persecution that they were experiencing. They needed to hear this. This is It's not an amillennial pessimism, but it's not a postmillennial triumphalism. It is the premillennial hope of the inaugurated kingdom, the now and not yet. What do I mean by that? It means 
the full peace doesn't come until the king of kings returns. But he's already producing his kingdom in our hearts and in our lives to where we can experience this peace even in the midst of heartache, turmoil, and pain. Not that he replaces or takes away the pain necessarily because we live in a broken world, but we can experience this peace even now and he is the God of peace and wants us to experience this peace even now. So back to the question though, how does God bring peace? Well, our passage says, first of all, by the great shepherd. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through Jesus Christ. Now notice here, it speaks of the God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead. So we already have the resurrection. By the way, in just a little bit, it'll talk about the blood of Jesus. So we also have the crucifixion. So we've already had Good Friday and Easter. And we'll have it again. Okay, next week. But here we see this incredible power of God raised Jesus from the dead. But the focus here is the great shepherd of the sheep. I want to read something from Ray Stedman, his commentary uh, on the Psalms. He's actually talking about the Lord is my shepherd, uh, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, to not want means I shall, I shall be satisfied. Not that everything is provided for me, but whatever my condition in life, I will ultimately be satisfied because the Lord is my shepherd. He says, because the Lord is my shepherd, I will not lack anything. He satisfies my needs. That is the place to which God brings to us. He wants us to be independently dependent upon him, to need him alone. There are only really two options in life. If the Lord is my shepherd, then I shall not want. But if I am in want, then it is obvious that the Lord is not my shepherd. It is that simple. If there is emptiness and loneliness and despair and frustration in our lives, then the Lord is not our shepherd. He doesn't mean that we don't have those difficulties in life, but when he is truly satisfied, that's what he's talking about. Or if anyone or anything else is shepherding us, we are never satisfied. If our vocation shepherds us, then there is restlessness and feverish activity and frustration. If education is our shepherd, then we are constantly being disillusioned. If another person is our shepherd, we are always disappointed and ultimately we are left empty. If alcohol or drugs is our shepherd, as one rock artist said recently, then we are wasted. And by the way, he wrote this back in the 70s. Uh, he's probably, I think he's referring to the who. So, you know, so that's a long time ago. But if the Lord is our shepherd, David says, we shall not want. It occurs to me that if Yahweh is to be our shepherd, then we have to begin by recognizing that we are sheep. I don't like that analogy, frankly, because I don't like sheep. I come by my dislike honestly. I used to raise sheep. In high school, I was in the 4-H club, and I had a herd of sheep and goats. 
Now, goats I can abide because they may be obnoxious, but at least they're smart. Sheep are beyond question the most stupid animals on the face of the earth. They are dumb, and they are dirty, and they are timid, and defenseless, and helpless. Mine were always getting lost, and hurt, and snake-bitten. They literally do not know enough to come in out of the rain. I look back on my shepherding days with a great deal of disgust. Sheep are miserable creatures. And then to have God tell me that I am one. That hurts my feelings. But if I'm really honest with myself, I know it is true. I know that I lack wisdom and strength. I'm inclined to be self-destructive. As the hymn says, I'm prone to wander. Isaiah said it best, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I know my tendency toward self-indulgent individualism, going my own way and doing my own thing. That's me. I'm a sheep. And if Jesus Christ is to be my shepherd, I have to admit that I need him. It is difficult, but that is where we must start. Once we admit that we need we discover the truth of what David is saying. We shall not want. We are sheep, and sheep are dumb and prone to wander. By the way, I think this is excellent proof. The sheep is excellent proof against evolution. There is absolutely no way that thing could have ever evolved to that state. It would have been selected out a long time ago. (laughs) But there you have it. We need the great shepherd. Jesus is called our great shepherd. In John chapter 10, it refers to him as our shepherd. I want you to turn there. The whole chapter is all about how he is our great shepherd, but we only have time to read a few verses. I want to read chapter 10, verses 14 through 18. He says, I am the good shepherd. Hmm. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. He's referring to reaching the Gentiles. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. Notice how powerful the shepherd is. This is resurrection power. If you noticed in this passage, it says that Jesus himself took his life back up. He laid it down, and he took it back up, meaning Jesus, who is the part of the triune God, God, the triune God, raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus himself was a part of raising himself from the dead. He is incredibly all-powerful. But also notice how caring the shepherd is. He laid down his life. If you ever doubt his power, think about the resurrection. If you ever doubt his care and his love, Think about the nail scars in his hands. This is our great shepherd. And it says, by the great shepherd, through his shed blood, 
the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, through his shed blood. He died on the cross, shed his blood for us so that we might have peace. Peace with God and then experience the peace of God. That's what he wants for us. But Jesus had to die on the cross for us. We see this in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. This was actually predicted 700 years before the crucifixion by Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, speaking of the Messiah, this is what he says about him. And by the way, this is several hundred years before crucifixion was even invented. This is what he says, Isaiah 53, verse 5. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Messiah, Jesus, was pierced and crushed. This is a violent death, the death of the crucifixion. Punished in our place. He was punished for our sins as our substitute so that we wouldn't be punished but instead would have peace with God. This is how God brings peace through his shed blood and bringing us into the everlasting covenant. He speaks of this in our passage as through the blood of the everlasting covenant. Salvation is a covenant. It's a covenant where, that God makes with us through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. It is called the new covenant. Now, with covenants, and there's many covenants in the Bible that it speaks of, quite often there's a ceremony that goes along with the covenant. And that's true with salvation, with the new covenant as well. For instance, uh, in uh, your marriage covenant, what's the ceremony? It's the wedding. Right? Okay. That's, that's usually when you get married, right? Is that your wedding? And, uh, and the covenant God makes with us, he provided everything through his death by uh, the death of Jesus Christ, and he simply calls us to repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for our salvation. And then we outwardly express that faith in baptism, which is the ceremony of this new covenant. So this is what God has provided for us that we might have Peace. That's how God brings peace. But the second question found in the next verse, why does God bring peace? Well, let me read verse 21. Uh, I'll back up just a little bit. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant, uh, may, may the God of peace equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Why does God bring peace? Now, God, in his word, what we see in the overall book here is that God has an eternal purpose for every one of us. And it's the same one. There is an eternal purpose for us, but also a temporary mission. 
The eternal purpose, the reason why God created us is to glorify him and enjoy him forever together in a relationship of love. That's why he made us. And we can either get in on that purpose and truly be filled, fulfilled and satisfied where we can say, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or we can rebel, right? So that's our eternal purpose. That's what we do it now and we do it forever. But also we see in the scriptures that God has a temporary mission. And there's an overall temporary mission for the church. It's the same mission as Jesus' mission. Jesus said the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we are to be all about that mission, this temporary mission that we can't do once we go to heaven, right? This is what we're called to now, to seek and to save the lost. So we all have, we have that overarching plan that this is what God calls us to now, but we all each have an individual part to play in it, different parts. But as together, when we find our part and get in on it, it all works together and the church seeks and saves the lost, right? So we all have that part. You've got to find out your part, but we also can rebel against that, can't we? We can decide to just sit on the couch because we have this free will thing, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and so God has this eternal purpose and this temporary mission. And by the way, our passage flip-flops him around. He first talks about the temporary mission, and then he talks about the eternal purpose. So watch, first of all, this e- temporary mission. To equip you with everything good to do his will working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. So why does God bring peace? To equip us to do his will. He has a plan, an incredible plan that we get to get in on. But it's got to be our ultimate plan. We cannot, our plan cannot be, how can I be happy? When that's our central focus, we never are happy. We have to get our focus off of that and onto Christ and what he's called us to. And then that's when we are truly satisfied, truly happy. So we see here to equip us to do his will. He has a plan. Don't focus on your own personal happiness. Focus on the plan. But now when you think about all this, it kind of almost sounds like, okay, we got to do a lot of work. Okay, But... What it says next, I think, is wonderful because what we see here is God does the work in us. Okay, see how we, see what he said there? Equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. It's not me gritting my teeth and going, oh, i got to just work hard. No, it's me putting myself in a place where I allow God to work through me. And see what he wants to do in his incredible purposes. Uh, Let me read from Warren Wiersbe's commentary. He speaks of this. He says, the phrase, make you perfect, that's from the King James, is the translation of one Greek word, katartidzo. This is an unfamiliar word to us, but it was familiar to the people who received this letter. The doctors knew it because it meant to set a broken bone. To fishermen, it meant to mend a broken net. To sailors, it meant to outfit a ship for a voyage. To soldiers, it meant 
to equip an army for battle. Our Savior in heaven wants to equip us for life on earth. Tenderly, he wants to set the broken bones in our lives so that we might walk straight and run our life races successfully. He wants to repair the breaks in the nets so that we might catch fish and win souls. He wants to equip us for battle and outfit us so that we will not be battered in the storms of life. In brief, he wants to mature us so that he can work in us and through us that which pleases him and accomplishes his will. He works through us to do the work which pleases him. By the way, this is found throughout the scriptures. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We see the same concept. By the way, whatever you do, you don't want to stop at verse 12 and just leave it there. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we need to be very careful. This is not saying we work for our salvation. He doesn't say work in yourself salvation. Okay? He says work out your salvation. You're already saved. Now work it out in your life. Let it make a difference in your life. That's what he's referring to here. So this is, has nothing to do with works righteousness or anything like that. But we are to do it with fear and trembling. But it still sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? But look at the next verse. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. He does the work through us. We simply put ourselves in a place where he can use us. Okay? So we see this concept. We see it again. Colossians 1, 29. It should be just right to the right there. Colossians 1, 29. Paul's saying this. Look at how he starts. He says, I labor for this striving. Boy, that sounds like a lot of work, right? <laughs> he says, I labor for this striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Not my own strength. I'll fall flat on my face if I do that. But through his strength. We see this in uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Should be just to the left a little bit. Ephesians 6, 10. This is the beginning of that great passage on spiritual warfare and on the armor of God. But look at how it begins. Ephesians 6, verse 10. He says, finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. It's not my strength. It's his strength working in me. I am to put myself in a place where I can receive his strength, his wisdom, his equipping. That's when we gather together on Sunday mornings or in life group, when we study the Bible ourselves, when we seek the Lord in prayer, when we're praising God, those times where we experience the presence of God, we have those glimpses of his glory, those tastes of his goodness, that equips us, it prepares us, it strengthens us, and then we step out in faith. We believe, okay, now God has equipped me, now he's gonna use me. And so I step out and I agree to come and pass out DVDs all over the city for two hours tromping through the snow. And we had a kick, didn't we? It was fun. All right? So 
And then we get, we get to see then. We get to watch what, whatever it is that we do. We pass out free cookies or whatever part God calls us to do, right? We get to then see what is God going to do through this. He's called us to this plan. And we see that he does the work through us. We put ourselves in a place where we can experience his power, and then we trust in him to accomplish his work through us. That's the temporary mission. But then he concludes with the eternal purpose, to bring glory to God. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To bring glory to God. We were not created for ourselves. We were created for him. That's when we will be most satisfied, when we get this part here right. Look what it says in Isaiah 43, verse 7. We see uh, God speaks of the reason why he made us. In Isaiah 43, verse 7, it says, Everyone who bears my name and is created for my glory, I have formed them. Indeed, I have made them. We were created for his glory. He goes on to say in verse 21, the people I formed for myself will declare my praise. He made us for himself. He made us to praise him, to bring him glory. We see this in Jeremiah 13, 11. Next book over to the right. Jeremiah 13, 11. Uh, down, uh, most of the way down the, the, the verse, it says, so that they might be my people for my fame, praise, and glory. God created us so that we would be his people for his fame, praise, and glory. Now, tragically, the verse ends, but they would not obey. We can choose to make ourselves the center of our lives instead of him. But this is why he created us. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. So in our book Hebrews, way back at the beginning, if you remember that long ago, it was about a year ago, I believe. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Notice in the middle, for whom and through whom all things exist. We exist for him, and he is the one who created us. We were made for him and for his glory. First Peter 2, verse 9, just to the right after James 1 Peter 2, verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We were created to praise him. To bring him glory. That's our eternal purpose. Why we exist. We are to do this in absolutely every aspect of our life. Look at 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. Last passage we'll look at on this subject here. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink 
Well, whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. When we get that right, all of a sudden, the zeal for God's glory takes over. I want to read you something from uh, Thomas Trevathan's book, The Beauty of God's Holiness. And uh, he says this, The classic description of this sort of life was given by J.C. Ryle when he described zeal in the following terms. And now he's going to quote J.C. Ryle. Zeal in religion is a burning desire to please God, to do his will. And that's what our passage said, right? Pleasing in his sight. His purpose, let's see, it is... To do his will and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. It is a desire which no man feels by nature, which the Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted, but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others that they alone deserve to be called zealous men. Now, I would add women too. Okay, That's just the way they talked back then. A zealous man or woman in religion, is preeminently a man of one thing. It is not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame. For all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. If he is consumed in the very burning, he cares not for it. He is content. He feels that like a lamp he is made to burn. And if consumed in burning, he has done the work for which God appointed him. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. If he cannot preach, work, and give money, he will cry and sigh and pray. If he cannot fight in the valley with Joshua, he will do the work of Moses, Aaron, and Hur on the hill. If he is cut off from working himself, he will give the Lord no rest till help is raised up from another quarter and the work is done. This is what I mean when I speak of zeal. He goes on, he said, Thomas says, the supreme exemplar of this overmastering passion for the glory of God is the Lord Jesus himself. His whole life was marked by rejection of the glory of the crowd and devotion to the glory of God. To bring God glory, our eternal purpose. I say it this way, to give God glory and enjoy him forever together because it's a community thing. It's calling a people, not just a bunch of individuals. Together, to, in a relationship of love, because love is the greatest of all commandments, to love God with all your heart. That's his purpose for us. Now, our passage ends with a farewell, okay? So let's just finish it. Verse 22. 
Brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Now, this is actually a letter, but it was a sermon. So it was a brief sermon, it says, a bit longer than my sermons. Okay, so no complaining. Just kidding. Be aware that our brother Timothy has been released. So this, he's, whoever the writer of Hebrews was, he's an acquaintance of Timothy, and Timothy apparently was in prison for a while. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. So now another, the third time in this chapter that he refers to the leaders of the local church. Those who are from Italy send you greetings. So apparently he's writing from Italy. And then he finishes. Grace be with you all. How many of you need grace? How many of you should show grace to your spouse, your siblings, your friends, your coworkers? God calls us to be a people of grace. We are the forgiven forgivers. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of peace. We don't deserve your peace. We deserve the opposite. But we are grateful. And we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven and that we could have peace with you and that you could pour out your peace upon us where we experience the peace of God. You are great. You are awesome. Help us now. Equip us now to fulfill your eternal purpose and your temporary mission. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship our King.